you have the chance to win a Spring Super Sweeps from LAist. Donate $60 for one entry to win a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Check out all the other prizes too when you donate now at LAist.com sweeps. Hi, this is Larry Mantle, host of Air Talk on KPCC. Since the start of the coronavirus pandemic, we've had a daily segment on Air Talk devoted to the latest information about COVID-19. As time's gone on, we've looked at vaccines and how the virus and pandemic have affected the lives of Southern Californians. That includes doctors, nurses, epidemiologists, and other medical professionals fighting the virus on the front lines. In each episode of this podcast, we'll speak with one of our experts on the rotating panel of AirTalk guests who will be sharing their expertise with us daily. You can also listen anytime at las.com kpcc.org, or subscribe wherever you download podcasts. Today, we're joined by Cedars-Sinai Medical Center Specialist in Emergency Medicine, Dr. Sam Torbati, who co-chairs emergency medicine for Cedars. Dr. Torbati, great to have you with us again today. A very good Wednesday to you. Good Wednesday to you, too, Larry. Great to be with you and your audience. So let's talk about uh, where we stand now. It looks like California in uh, very good shape when it comes to COVID-19. The uh, positive test rate in the state, 1.5%. That's the lowest it's been since before the Delta surge last summer. So it seems like we're in a very good place. We we are in a wonderful place right now in California. Um, the rates are low and um, it's, a, it's a great time in the pandemic. Um, but as you mentioned, Larry, um, there's a few things we're watching abroad in Europe in particular that are giving us a little, uh, you know, a little pause. And, and we're hoping that, that, we, that it stays as good as it is here in California at this low rate of 1.5%, maybe even lower. But we, we, have, we have our eyes wide open. Uh, let's talk about what's happening in Europe because the concern is that you know potentially this this could uh, forecast what happens here in the UK and elsewhere in Europe. There is an increase in cases, um, and and uh, in in Britain, for example, they've had nearly double uh, the number uh, the case rate per hundred thousand residents from three hundred fifty five to six hundred ninety four in the EU the rate has risen less dramatically but from seven hundred sixty four to eight hundred seventy two per hundred thousand residents I mean that's that's many many times what we see right now in California um, you know your your thoughts about what may or may not be the same about, you know, their population, what they're seeing, and, and our population here? Well, um, we're watching carefully because, um, you know, the, the, the history of, of COVID-19 has demonstrated that what happens in Europe tends to, you know, land its way here to the States within a few weeks or a month. And so um, understanding the dynamics of what's happening in Europe and not just Europe and other places where there's record highs, places like China and Hong Kong and New Zealand and, and South Korea, I think understanding and, and, and studying it becomes important so that we can be prepared and have the right policies in place. Um, why it's happening in Europe, you know, this, this illness, as we've 
gone through these last couple of years together is is so variable. There's so many factors. There's the population. There's the variants. There is uh, protection um, through vaccinations and native immunity. Um, you know, right now, you know, this this uh, combination of this uh, Omicron subvariant, the BA2 being so much more transmissible, is probably a, a big factor. You know, 30% more transmissibility is significant. And um, we now have a lot of people that, you know, are out, you know, socializing and, and a lot of the measures we had in place have, have dropped. So there's more opportunity for people to get infected, um, not just first time, but now opportunities for reinfection since we know that the Omicron variant and subvariants can can reinfect much more uh, readily than the other variants. Well, and, and it's interesting looking at this BA2 subvariant because it has grown locally, but just from what uh, Barbara Ferrer, Dr. Ferrer of L.A. County Public Health indicates, that growth has been pretty slow in the percentage of cases. It's still a distinct minority of cases of COVID here in Southern California, but it seems like BA2 blew up to be a much bigger percentage of overall cases in other places Unlike here, do you have any theories about why that might be? Oh, I'm sure it's just a question of time. I mean, when we look at the national trends in terms of what's happening with that BA2, it's on its way up. So um, it's just not in, in Southern California yet. But without a doubt, I think if we have this, if we look at the data in another two to four weeks, the numbers will be, you know, sky high. Um, there's from a biological standpoint, you know, viruses have biological advantage if they have higher transmissibility they can reproduce better they can they can grow more and so um, this BA2 being 30% more transmissible clearly gives it a evolutionary advantage and I'm confident that this will become the the dominant you know subvariant in the next few weeks is delta essentially gone in the US has omicron fully supplanted it uh, there's still a little bit of Delta left. Um, the the data, you know, still from the CDC is is there, and it shows us the presence. It's just not as as much of a factor. And again, as 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 you can imagine, you know, as viruses get introduced to a population, uh, population, you know, develops immunity. The population becomes sick. Hopefully, most of the population survives, and they develop immunity. And um, the opportunity for the virus to continue to reinfect goes down. And so if it doesn't have the opportunity to, to multiply and grow, then it dies. All right. Uh, we invite your questions for Dr. Sam Torbati, emergency medicine specialist, Cedars-Sinai. We're at 866-893-KPCC. That's 866 866- Eight nine three five seven two two. You can also email us at atcomments at kpcc.org. Please include your first name and your location. We have breaking news. The Federal Reserve, in its efforts to try and tame the worst inflation since the 1970s, is raising its benchmark short-term interest rate and signaling potentially up to seven rate hikes in this year. The Fed's quarter-point hike in its key rate, which has been near zero since the uh, recession uh, from the pandemic struck two years ago, 
marks the start of the Fed's efforts to curb the high inflation that's followed the recovery from the recession. The rate hikes will eventually mean higher loan rates for many consumers and for businesses. Uh, So again, the Federal Reserve launching uh, its uh, effort to try and tame inflation, at least somewhat, with a quarter-point hike in its key rate. Again, your questions for Dr. Torbati were at 866 893-KPCC. One of the things that uh, in the past few months has become uh, a more central part, it seems, of monitoring the spread of COVID is monitoring of wastewater to see um, you know, what what level of virus there is in wastewater. And uh, found that there is a bump in COVID cases in some parts of the U.S. More than a third of the CDC's wastewater sample sites across the country showed rising COVID-19 trends in the period March 1st to March 10th, even as reported cases have stayed near a recent low. Now, we know that the wastewater can be uh, a leading indicator because uh, people may not end up testing or or showing positive. Um, you know, first, it might be in the wastewater. Dr. Torbati, do you, you think this is indicative that we could be seeing an increase? This is a fascinating uh, technology. Um, you know, the CDC's wastewater monitoring program is, is absolutely brilliant. And yes, the data is is uh, spotty. It's actually interesting when you look at um, even within California, there's different regions, there's different counties that have very different numbers in terms of whether there's an increase or decrease. But uh, certainly this data has has demonstrated reliably that it, the, the, the amount of uh, virus particles that we can detect in wastewater is a good predictor of disease in the community that's that's likely to appear. And so, um, you know, a third increase, um, you know, uh, tells us that we, you know, there may be things around the corner for us when it comes to COVID. There's a New York Times article uh, yesterday which um, looked at the Johnson & Johnson vaccine and uh, new data apparently suggesting that the J&J vaccine has been uh, at least as successful in uh, cutting hospitalizations and deaths as the mRNA vaccines from Moderna and Pfizer, um, which is a little surprising, Dr. Torbati, because J&J did not seem to be performing as well in the longer-term trials, you know, of, of its efficacy against uh, COVID-19. What do you think about this newer data? Yeah, this is a, this is a great story. Um, great, great story of a, of a very good vaccine that came on the scene. It showed really powerful effects in terms of its protection. But because of, you know, the, the earlier data from the mRNA vaccines, you know, exceeding its performance, kind of got pounced on and was kind of, you know, thrown to the side. And now we're discovering that, you know, there may be something different about this this, this vaccine technology and the way that this vaccine interacts that, um, that you know, over the long term, actually, it's actually a pretty good vaccine. And it actually does a heck of a lot of protection in terms of protecting people from severe disease and hospitalization and deaths. So I, I think there's a lot to learn, which is that, you know, we shouldn't make conclusions just on early data. 
we, we need to monitor data when it comes to technologies, medications, therapeutics, vaccines over the long term, and um, be cautious in terms of how we judge things. Um, and certainly it looks like the J&J vaccine uh, is quite effective. I hope that it becomes uh, more popular and it makes a comeback from a standpoint of you know ease of its administration. It's so much easier to manage than the mRNA vaccines. You, you know, they don't need the same cold chain supply issues and they, they last so much longer and it could be provided to so many other places, not just within the U.S., but across the world where people have low access. Um, so I hope to see more of this and I, and I hope that, uh, you know, the reputation for the J&J vaccine recovers and more people uh, look at it as an option. What what raised uh, the concerns about it compared to the mRNA vaccine? Was it was it the antibody tests in people uh, afterwards that they found it didn't last as long? Was that what became the knock on it? You know the the knock. A lot of it had to do with uh, antibody response, and early on we we were looking at also at different um, variants. So the the way the J and J vaccine is uh, performing against Omicron in particular is surprising. The um, the uh, mRNA vaccines didn't really have the same type of protection against Omicron, and apparently the Johnson and Johnson does. So again, you know this this virus is so fascinating, keeps you know mutating, and as this happens, our the vaccine's effectiveness will change as will our different therapeutics. We saw it in our monoclonal antibodies, for example. We had monoclonal antibodies that were amazingly protective, and then all of a sudden, this, you know, Omicron came around, and the monoclonal antibodies did nothing. So the science is is rapidly, rapidly evolving, and we need to just kind of stay on top of it and keep everybody up to date and try to provide the best, you know, evidence so that people can make great decisions on as the rest of the uh, you know, health systems do. We're talking with the co-chair of emergency medicine at Cedars-Sinai in L.A. Dr. Sam Torbati joins us pretty much weekly on Air Talk to answer your questions about COVID-19. We're at 866-893-KPCC or email us at atcomments at kpcc.org. David in Pasadena says, my wife is eight weeks pregnant and uh, she's gotten COVID for the first time. Uh, is it recommended and safe for her to get the booster shot? shot now? Um, as, as far as uh, we know, um, as long as she has recovered from the, um, from the illness, uh, she's eligible to, to get a booster. Um, but she can also wait because she's going to be protected, you know, uh, up to 90 days afterwards. So this is um, a purely a choice. There's, there's no strong recommendations. Okay, and it's unclear to me in David's question whether she currently has COVID or whether she recent. I don't know what the time frame from his from his question is, but is there a recommended time after having COVID to to get it, or or no advice on that at all? So the the current guidelines are that um, uh, patients who um, have had COVID as long as they have recovered from the COVID, which generally is the ten days for healthy people. Um, they're eligible to get, to get a booster, um, but that they don't they don't have to because the the innate response to the infection will produce 
uh, immune response through both um, T cell and B cell immunity as well as antibodies. So they could wait, you know, up to 90 days, but if they wanted to, it's certainly safe for them to get, um, you know, boosted right away as long as they're 10 days out. It sounds like she still has COVID, so this would be then, uh, you know, 10 days out from her recovery from it. So, David, we wish your wife well. Um, it's unfortunate she's going through this, um, particularly while she's a couple months pregnant. Uh, Dr. Torbati, uh we have another question today, and we get these daily about, uh, you know, getting another booster shot. Dennis in Alhambra is the one who, who asked this time, wondering, you know, when should people consider a second booster? We know that Pfizer has asked the FDA to recommend that people 65 and older, uh, when they're a few months out from their booster, get another booster shot of the Pfizer vaccine. Um, what do you think about that? I think it's around the corner, and I, and I believe it's inevitable that we'll be looking at another booster. The question that's that's out there right now that's being debated, and um, this is where sort of some of the debates that'll happen uh, from, from the data that uh, Pfizer's presenting is, what's the best timing? Is it now, or should we wait until we're closer to sort of you know fall and winter? And should the recommendations be for boosters for all, or should it be for the higher risk individuals, you know, patients who are potentially older or, um, you know, people who are at higher risk for complications? So I'm confident it's coming. It's just a question of time. And, um, you know, this is where, you know, the CDC will be looking at, at a lot of data to make the best recommendations for us. Well, and, and I wonder if in the fall, is it realistic that we might have a tweaked uh, booster shot that takes into account the newer variants like Omicron or the Omicron subvariant BA2, or even have a shot available that is um, a wider spectrum that, that covers uh, more of the coronavirus waterfront? Oh, absolutely. If, if the technology is there so that we can have sort of a universal, you know, coronavirus uh vaccine that provides, you know, immunity towards multiple variants, that's, that's the go-to. Um, but we also don't know what's going to come around the corner. I mean, it's, it's only March right now, and six months when it comes to how this virus evolves and what it could behave like is, is it, it's almost... Long time. <laughs> it's a very long time. All right. Dr. Torbati uh, joining us on AirTalk. Oh, we have a, another quick question before I let you go. Alex in Mount Washington says that um, he's heard about lower efficacy for the Pfizer vaccine in children. Alex says, my pediatric doctor is recommending we wait because, you know, parents only have the Pfizer as, as the available vaccine for kids. And Alex wonders, when do you think we'll have more options for pediatric vaccines? Great question, Alex. You know, the, the issue of pediatric vaccines continues to, to evolve. It's relatively new since it, we haven't had as much experience with it as we have with adults. And, you know, the presence of Omicron and the Omicron subvariants really threw us for a loop. If this was just one virus, if it was just Delta, for example, that we could study and have evidence for, it would make things a lot easier. So um, right now, we just have to monitor it really cautiously and carefully. Fortunately, we have an entire world that's 
doing the same look of things. We have data that comes out of our own national databases, uh, such as CDC, and we also have data that's coming from elsewhere around the world. So uh, just hang in there. Um, we'll have data. Um, just keep uh, listening to Larry. I'm sure uh, he will, he will, he'll keep all of you completely up to date. Dr. Torbati, it's always a pleasure. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. And we'll look forward to talking with you again soon. So do I. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of COVID in L.A. If you'd like to stay up to date with the latest coronavirus news, you can listen anytime at LAist.com, at kpcc.org, or subscribe wherever you download podcasts. See you next time and stay safe. I'm Larry Mantle. This program is made possible in part by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, a private corporation funded by the American people.